This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. The anniversary of the diplomatic opening between the U.S. and Cuba brings the end of our year-long focus on Cuba. We'll feature a special in-depth interview and explaining the political meltdown that has Brazil in crisis. It's all about politics this week. But first, Natalie Ottinger is here with the details of those political developments in Brazil and the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The political crisis deepened in Brazil this week as federal prosecutors asked for the official removal of the president of the country's Chamber of Deputies, Alberto Cunha. Police also raided Cunha's home and the homes of other high-ranking politicians in connection to the widening corruption scandal linked to Brazil's state oil company Petrobras. Complicating matters further, Cunha is behind impeachment efforts to remove Brazil's president, Dilma Rousseff, from office. Members of Brazil's Chamber of Deputies say Rousseff overstepped the powers of her office by hiding federal expenditures from Brazil's Congress. This week, though, Rousseff's party, the Workers' Party, organized demonstrations and meetings to show support for the president. The president addressed one such meeting and said impeachment was an insult to voters who re-elected her last year. To advance as a democracy, we must respect the popular vote. We must respect electoral results. Today we must defend democracy to see Brazil advance. Those who oppose me wouldn't stand the test of a Google search for what they have done in the past. Since last year's elections, Rousseff's popularity has tumbled. Most polls show her popular support at less than 10 percent, with many Brazilians favoring impeachment. We'll have more on the political crisis in Brazil later on this program. The U.S. and Cuba marched the one-year anniversary of their diplomatic thaw with more historic news this week. The governments have agreed on plans to allow direct flights by U.S. air carriers to the island. Currently, passengers traveling from the U.S. can only use special charter flights to Cuba. But Miami's airport lists more and more such charters daily. U.S. carriers, American, United, Southwest, and JetBlue, all expressed interest in opening direct routes to Cuba. American Airlines has operated charter services to Cuba since 1991, but direct service to Cuba by U.S. airlines ended more than 50 years ago. American Airlines says it hopes to offer as many as 30 flights a day to Cuba. Travel experts say the airline won't be able to offer tickets to Cuba until spring or summer. And U.S. tourists will still face restrictions as part of the U.S. embargo. We'll have more on travel and business in Cuba later on this program. Major League Baseball is also a part of the diplomatic thaw between Cuba and the U.S. A group of U.S. All-Stars and Hall of Famers toured the island this week holding workshops and sports clinics, and the traveling group prominently featured eight players who had defected from Cuba. At one time, the Cuban government had reviled the defectors, censoring news of their accomplishments and refusing to show any games where they were featured on Cuban television. But all that has changed as Cuban baseball officials and young fans warmly greeted them, and some of the players were able to make extended stops to see family members. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger.
Thanks, Natalie. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Our listening group in Amsterdam was our second largest this past month, behind only our listeners in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. So we say donkje to all of our listeners in Amsterdam and elsewhere around the globe. Many listeners know this program traveled to Cuba last month with Bob Holden, the former governor of Missouri, as he led a cultural and educational exchange group to the island. This week marks a year since U.S. President Barack Obama and Cuban leader Raul Castro made their joint announcement to normalize relations between the two countries after more than 50 years of Cold War hostilities. We thought this was the appropriate time to share the second part of our interview with Governor Holden about his trip and the potential for business, tourism, and better relations with Cuba. This interview was recorded in Havana, where the city's traffic can sometimes be heard in the background. What do you think of the Obama move? Was it bold? Uh, it was bold. I, I think it was overdue. Uh, but I'm glad to see that, that he's done it. Uh, I, I want him to continue to look for ways to uh, ease uh, the, uh, and improve the relationships with Cuba, as I want him to look for ways to, to improve the relationship with other countries around the world. Because it's only through building those strong cultural and governmental and business ties that we have an opportunity to try to make sure and address the ISIS issues and other radical groups around the world that's really trying to undermine our culture as well as, well as other cultures. Let's talk about Missouri in the Midwest a bit. Um, how does somewhere as far away from Cuba as Missouri have a way to to work itself into what's happening here, the opening that's happening here? Well, first of all, the the state of Missouri and the Midwest is a leading agricultural producer in the country. Uh, we also lead the country in manufacturing. Uh, we have a, a cultural uh, environment that I think would be very receptive to Cuban involvement. I think we can, uh, through our relationships and uh, culture that we have, I think we can have a much greater uh, strengthening relationship with Cuban interest than other parts of the United States. But we've got to be willing to step out there and lead the delegations, whether they, be, whether they be cultural, educational, business, or agriculture. We need to start bringing people from the Midwest and Missouri to Cuba and Cuban interest to Missouri and the Midwest so they can actually get a sense of uh, the culture that they're, we want to be involved with and they, they can understand. Uh, in doing that, then I think there's a great opportunity for us. But it's not going to happen by us waiting for it to happen. We need to be proactive and not reactive in this process. We still have to deal with the politics of lifting the embargo and changing laws, though. We have to, to address the embargo issue and the changing laws, and it's not all going to happen uh, at, at overnight, and it's not going to happen at one time. Uh, but every step that we take uh, to build that relationship is one step further that helps us strengthen so that others can untie the relationship that's already been created. Some people would say that the problems with Cuban human rights, cracking down on dissidents, the other problems of political development, the fact that they still have, it's a one-party state, that these are things that are also holding back, that Republicans, conservatives, others have really felt that 
the Obama administration has given too much in this particular period. How do you answer those particular concerns? Well, if you've been shut out from the, even the dialogue and the discussion, how can you have any real impact on what other culture is doing? But if you have a relationship and they begin to understand our culture, then I think you have a much greater opportunity to influence their culture so they can, because then they would see the benefit and the value of changing their own policy. By, by closing our door and, and locking it so that the two can't even talk or interact with each other, I don't think does anything to force them to change their policies. If, if it did, this last 40 years would not have turned out like they have up to this point. So I, I think that uh, the real key to success is to step-by-step start linking our opportunities with opportunities in Cuba so that both sides can see the benefit of that relationship. And as that progresses, then that gives us a greater opportunity to, I think, influence the decision-making in in their country. For this to to truly be successful, it has to be a win-win situation, both for the American economy and the American culture and the, the Cuban economy and the Cuban culture. I know it's a lot to sum up after a week of touring the country, and you haven't just been in Havana, but you've been outside the city too. Uh, Any particular moment that that stays with you right now that you think about a lot? Not one particular moment, but but several uh, moments uh, from the standpoint. In many ways, I see a country that has stood still in time. Uh, a lot of what we saw in the rural parts of, of uh, Cuba uh, was probably what was there 50 years ago. Some of the uh, iconic uh, hotels and businesses and things like that 50 years ago looks like uh, today what they were 50 years ago, but now they don't have any people. They, they're run down. Uh, they're, they're not successful. And so it's, it's in many ways kind of walking back in time. The same feelings I had when I made my trip to uh, Germany and Berlin uh, 30 years ago and, and walked through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin. And it was like I walked back to 1945 because the buildings were still standing, the, the, uh, the uh, bomb holes were in the sides of the buildings and things like that. Now, you, now today, you go to, to East, Berlin, East Berlin and the rest of the uh, uh, communist world, or at one time was the communist world, uh, after World War II, and it's a far different culture and environment. And our businesses have been tremendously benefited by that change. And I think with a country that's only 90 miles away, and is really the, the country that is the doorway to the uh, Caribbean and South American economy, that this could be a tremendous uh, opening for American uh, culture, educational institutions, and businesses to reestablish our economic presence, not only in Cuba, but throughout Central and South America. You're known as someone who has reached out and studied China as a, as a, as a place that Missouri could also uh, reach out to economically and, and plug into the global economy. And so I wonder if you see um, in this particular system that where the Chinese and the Venezuelans have been a big part of trade for Cuba, are we now going to be competing with the Chinese for a space in the Cuban economy? Yes, we are. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the free enterprise people would say that that's okay. Uh, right now, we're not competing, and they're winning. 
uh, I want us to compete and I want us to win. And we do that by having policies uh, that are progressive uh, and address the issues. It, we win by having uh, the in intellectual uh, capacity to be the world's leaders in uh, creation of new products and, and uh, uh, new, new thoughts. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that uh, there's an opportunity here. China is not going to go away. Cuba is, is now become, going to become more of a presence in the past. You know, Japan is re-energizing itself after its very difficult 1990s period. You've got countries like Indonesia and Vietnam and Thailand and, and many others that are starting to try to figure out how they can take a more powerful role. We're not going to be the only economic influence in the world going forward. We can be the leader in shaping that economic influence for a world economy if we're willing to engage everyone in this process and be a leader. Do you see parallels? Obviously, Cuba and its economy much smaller than the Chinese giant. But are there parallels in the development between what China did in moving out of a totally communist-controlled system and what Cuba is trying to do now? Very much so. And, and the, the, you can't compare the two economies, as you said. At the same time, uh, by Cuba only being 90 miles away from our uh, shores in Florida, the, the, the changes and the impact that we could have on their economy uh, can be much more visible and much quicker than the involvement that we've had with China and other uh, uh, powers from around the world. The, one of the things that struck me is Cuba needs people that know how to create wealth and not destroy their social fabric in the process. Uh, and if we can do that and be their partner, we could see in the next 20, 25 years a Cuba that was as economically vibrant as it was in, in some of the 50s and 60s. Uh, but the difference will be is I think this, this economic revival will raise a boat of all Cubans. And the reason they had a revolution in the late 50s and, and early 60s is because there was a real separation between the wealth in the Cuban culture and the average Cuban who felt like that they were poor, staying poor, and going to get poor, where the wealthy got richer and richer and richer. And so I think we have an opportunity to, to build with Cuba a, an economic uh, uh, economy that can grow and help all Cubans as well as all Americans. Thank you so much. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, Bob Holden, the former governor of the state of Missouri. Join us here in Havana, Cuba. Thank you very much, Governor. Coming up, political upheaval in Brazil. We'll have an analysis. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly 2 million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. As we heard earlier in this program, police raided the home of Alberto Cunha, the president of Brazil's House of Delegates, and federal prosecutors are asking for his removal due to a scandal involving the state oil firm Petrobras. 
These moves come as Cunha is leading efforts to impeach President Dilma Rousseff. Brazil's Supreme Court is also poised to decide very soon if those impeachment charges can proceed. We asked Matt Taylor at American University to give us his analysis of this political crisis. Taylor is the co-editor of the book, Corruption and Democracy in Brazil. We reached him via Skype in Washington, D.C. So this is a long, long uh, standing story in Brazil. Of course, there's been corruption under a number of different governments um, since the return to democracy and even under the military regime uh, that governed between 1964 and 1985. But I would say that this is um, perhaps the most wide-ranging investigation. Uh, it began um, with evidence, uh, a wiretap of a money launderer. Brazilians uh, refer to these money launderers as doleiros uh, because they, they traffic in dollars. And uh, it turned out that this particular money launderer had given a Land Rover to a top executive at Petrobras, the state-owned uh, oil company. And this led to uh, a much deeper investigation entitled Lava Jato, or Car Wash, um, that, that ended up turning up, uh, among many other things, suspicious payments um, to this particular Doledo from the winners of a contract to build the massive uh, Abreu y Lima refinery that Petrobras was building as part of its uh, efforts to deal with Brazil's pre-salt oil discovery. Um, the Abreu and Lima refinery in Pernambuco State uh, had been plagued by cost overruns. It's an $18 billion project at this point. And um, the prosecutors in this case have, have turned up evidence of um, billions of dollars in bribes. Uh, nearly half a billion dollars in bribes have actually been recovered, which gives you a, a, just a, a, a a glimpse of the, the scale of this, this uh, corruption scandal. Uh, there have already been 75 convictions. And what I think is most striking uh, to this Lava Jato case is that um, the elite who have traditionally been immune to prison in Brazil, they've been uh, granted practical immunity in almost all scandals, uh, are uh, now many of them are behind bars. And so the, the courthouse and the prison, the associated jail in Paraná State uh, that's been leading this corruption, anti-corruption drive, uh, the, the prison has been populated by Petrobras executives, doleros, lawyers, construction magnates, uh, an investment banker, a senator. So really a, a, a wide-ranging and really remarkable uh, story. The sort of the tentacles of this crisis have spread and um, now are threatening both, as you mentioned, the PMDB, uh, the, the centrist party that's been in all of the administrations, presidential administrations since the return to democracy. Uh, it's threatening the Workers' Party, President Rousseff's party, and the party of uh, President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who was her predecessor. Um, and it's threatening also uh, a number of smaller parties, such as the, the PP. As we record this interview, the Brazilian Supreme Court is deciding whether those impeachment proceedings can go forward against President Rousseff. And we, we should be clear that those allegations 
are not linked directly to Petrobras, but have, have to do with allegations that she spent money, went beyond the budget that Congress had approved without seeking that approval from Congress, which is anti-constitutional. You know, this is, uh, I'm glad you raised that, Rick. This is, I think, the most uh, ironic aspect of the current political situation. Uh, As you said, the impeachment petition, even though it's couched in a lot of language about corruption, uh, it actually is based entirely on um, what what Brazilians are calling fiscal pedaladas, or the cycling of money, Um, and essentially attempts uh, to use state banks to hide the fact that the government was spending beyond what had been authorized to spend. Um, But but it does tie back into the scandal, in part because um, the Speaker of the Chamber of Deputies, Brazil's lower house, uh, Eduardo Cunha, had spent most of 2015 in a standoff with uh, President Rousseff, um, and they both had the material that they needed to destroy each other, but neither wanted to move forward. So this was a, a very dangerous game of chicken. Um, and what changed at the beginning of December was that government rec- uh, the government was able to obtain records from the Swiss government showing that Cunha, despite his denials, actually held Swiss bank accounts. Um, and uh, this really tipped to the balance. Uh, the Ethics Committee uh, met to consider uh, Cunha's um, removal from the post of president and his potential expulsion from the Chamber of Deputies. And most importantly, although they never voted, three members of the Workers' Party, three um, congressmen from the Workers' Party serving on the Ethics Committee, signaled that they would vote against Cunha. And so, in essence, they demonstrated that uh, Dilma did not really, Dilma Rousseff did not control the PT. Um, and uh, at that point, Cunha exercised his prerogative as president of the chamber and decided to push forward one of about 30 petitions for impeachment that he had in his desk drawer. So um, there is a slight connection to corruption, but you're absolutely right that this impeachment proceeding is all about the fiscal accounts uh, for, for 2014. And this is, of course... Also very interesting because there's genuine uh, concern in Brazil that this is not a legitimate reason for impeachment. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, One being that uh, before impeaching the president, you might hold responsible her finance minister um, if the the cause for impeachment is is really fiscal. But the other, and this is the legal uh, debate that's going on right now, the other problem is that um, the Constitution requires impeachment uh, to take place only when there's a proven case of wrongdoing during the president's current term. And her term began, Dilma Rousseff's term began in January 2015. And so wrongdoing, fiscal wrongdoing in 2014 might not pass the legal bar. If I'm to believe that the president is not responsible to be impeached um, because of these fiscal changes that were were not approved by Congress, and literally the sort of rotating of money in bank accounts that is very much like laundering of money, um, 
that that her financial minister is going to be responsible for that and that she may have not known anything about it, even though that she she benefited politically from this. First, I would say it's not it's not exactly like money laundering, but it certainly demonstrates that the government was trying to get around restrictions on spending that have been in place, partly because of the legacy of hyperinflation in Brazil. But, you know, these restrictions have been in place for the better part of two decades. This could be seen as um, managerial malfeasance, which is the allegation in the impeachment petition. I think the the bigger point here, though, is that it doesn't really matter what the allegations are. This will be a political rather than a legal process. I think that the part of the uncertainty that Brazil is facing at this point, though, is whether uh, Rousseff has the support that she needs uh, to to defend herself against the political process. Um, right now, uh, I would say until last week. Uh, Rousseff had a defensive block of about 200 deputies in the 513-seat chamber of deputies, and she needs only 171 votes to actually block impeachment. The, the problem, however, is that the federal police, as you mentioned, uh, began investigating the PMDB, and this week uh, had their cars out. Uh, at, in dawn raids on the leadership of the House and then on several ministers who belong to the PMDB. And so one of the questions, the PMDB had been about evenly split, and one of the questions, um, I think, facing the country as a whole is, will these raids change the way that the PMDB behaves? Uh, the BMDB is a party that has never really been able to operate as a solid block. Uh, but when you only have a 29-vote margin in your favor, uh, as Dilma Rousseff has at this point, uh, all those votes, of course, count. Given the poll ratings of President Rousseff, does she really have the, the popular backing to, to play this sort of brass-knuckle politics? This is a great question. I mean, I think that the, uh, and unfortunately, I don't really have an answer. Rousseff has not proven to be a very able politician, and she, of course, has not uh, been operating in the most propitious uh, of circumstances. The economy is a mess. The, the scandal, of course, has, has had just huge ramifications in terms of the public's perceptions. She's also not particularly helped by uh, those around her. Uh, one of the other things that we haven't discussed is that her vice president, Michelle Temer, actually broke with her um, and sent a letter in early December laying out all of the reasons why uh, she had treated him poorly over the course of his time in the vice presidency. And many people saw this as a signal that uh, Temer was trying to free himself of Dilma and, and, and perhaps even set up uh, a new coalition that he could use to govern um, if she were impeached. The other, the other issue is sort of the lingering role of uh, Rousseff's predecessor and mentor, uh, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva. And Lula, of course, um, uh, has been trying to free himself from the rather tarnished legacy that uh, Rousseff uh, has left him as the 
leading candidate for the Workers' Party in the 2018 election. So, um, you know, at this point, Lula himself may have little to lose from impeachment. Certainly wouldn't help him, but on the other hand, um, it would free him from this, uh, you know, yoke. It might make more viable a PT candidacy for the presidency in 2018. Thank you so much. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, Matt Taylor of American University, the co-editor of the book Corruption and Democracy in Brazil. Thank you so much for joining us again on Latin Pulse. Thank you for having me. And now a program advisory due to the holidays. Latin Pulse will be offline for the next few weeks. We'll resume programming in the new year on January the 8th, 2016. Thanks for joining us this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash Pulse. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin dash Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Natalie Ottinger and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Feliz Navidad y felices fiestas. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. Music